Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. Sleep, we all want a piece of it. Either you're getting some or you're not. I've shared with you all the ways that I hacked my own sleep and how it changed my life and how I'm up to the point where I can get about two hours of deep sleep and two hours of REM sleep in six hours, which has been really transformative for how I feel, even how I look. On the show, I've brought in top sleep experts to share their research and offer up some really solid hacks you can use. And since sleep is one of the things I get asked about the most, I just created a multimedia sleep series as part of Better Sleep Month. So I've chosen the most compelling and useful interviews from Bulletproof Radio, the coolest articles from the blog, and a batch of different videos. Each week, I'm going to bring you the best Bulletproof tips and tools for sleep that I know how to gather so you can start sleeping better. Get hooked up with sleep on the blog at blog.bulletproof.com and check out dave.asprey on Instagram where I post all the good stuff. For National Sleep Month, this is a reworked and upgraded combined episode of Bulletproof Radio featuring Sachin Panda, who's one of the leading researchers on circadian rhythms at the Salk Institute. He explains why we're wired to follow a natural pattern of light and dark and the ways that sleep has a profound effect on so many different things involving your health, things like weight, diabetes, depression, metabolic syndrome, even cancer. You're going to learn so much in this episode. I'm really excited to put it together for you. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. I'm really happy to have a friend and former uh, guest of Bulletproof Radio back on the show. I'm talking about none other than Sachin Panda, PhD, who's a leading expert in circadian rhythm and a professor at the Salk Institute in San Diego. He has written uh, an app called My Circadian Clock that helps you synchronize your uh, circadian biology. And his lab has been transformative because he's shown the profound impact of ambient light and daily eating fasting on preventing huge numbers of diseases like diabetes, depression, metabolic syndrome, heart disease, cancer, and stuff like that. He's also come up with this concept of time-restricted eating, and it's very related to intermittent fasting, but 
he says that people who eat everything within an eight to 12 hour period can boost their circadian rhythm and maybe even reduce chronic diseases. Dr. Panda, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. That was a really nice uh, introduction and <laughs> I'm really flattered that uh, you are such a big fan of circadian rhythm and everybody should be <laughs> because as you said, that's one of the foundations of better health. Why are we finding all these changes just in the period of time of your work? Like what happens to make us become more aware and, and to, to crack the code, given that's the title of your book? Yeah, well, circadian biology is a very interesting aspect of biology. If you think about every other um, field of biomedical research, there is a disease and then people work on the disease. Circadian rhythm came uh, started as a very simple curiosity. Why we go to sleep? why we sleep for seven hours or eight hours and is there a clock inside and what has happened is in the last 20 years the key discoveries uh, can be summarized into three major things one is people discovered that just like our brain has a clock almost every organ has its own clock and that completely transformed how we think about circadian clocks second one was uh, we also figured out that blue light is a strong um, agent in sunlight that uh, resets our clock or uh, having exposure to blue light at night can disrupt the clock. And then the third major discovery was uh, how foot timing affects our clock. So these three um, really transformed how we think about health. Because if you think about now what circadian rhythm field is doing, this is the only field that's actually studying what is health? Because all other fields of biomedical research study what is disease. So we can go over these three major um, uh, discoveries or breakthroughs in circadian rhythm field. The first one is every organ has its clock. And that's a profound statement because if we think about clock, we always think about sleep. So that means just like our brain has a clock that tells our brain to sleep for seven to eight hours at night, it also tells our brain that the peak time to do complex math, have complex business negotiation, or solve problem is somewhere, say, between 8 a.m. and 2 p.m. So that means if other organs have clogged, they should have an optimum time to do their job, and they also need downtime to rest, reset, and rejuvenate. So slowly, uh, over the last 20 years, People working in this field are finding out that, yes, that's true. Um, just like our brain has a clock, liver has a clock, and it can digest food and can nurture our body for only seven to eight hours or maximum, say, 12 hours. And then it needs downtime. So similarly, our gut has a clock. Even the microbiome that lives inside the gut, they have a circadian clock or a daily clock. Muscles have a clock. So now if we think of every single, if we think of our health, our health is a product of um, our organs and hormones. And when our organs, hormones, and brain chemicals rise and fall at the right time, then our body clock synchronize and we are at top performance. So that's a very profound concept that's evolving in circadian rhythm field. Okay. You mentioned the liver uh, quite a lot in there. And... Uh, it, it's funny, people oftentimes don't associate circadian things and sleep with what the liver is doing. Tell me more about why you brought that up. 
Well, liver is the, if you think about uh, liver is the one of the largest solid organ that is very important for metabolism. So it uh, produces fuel for almost every part of our body, including brain. It also breaks down a lot of uh, uh, xenobiotics or unwanted molecules that we ingest. Um, this is also a place where we produce many of the key molecules for fighting infection. So liver plays a huge role in our health. And in fact, uh, interestingly, most of the circadian studies uh, these days have moved away from looking at the brain and they are more and more looking at the liver uh, since liver plays such a big role. So for example, if we think about um, fasting, then liver is the major place where we should, our liver produces some ketone bodies towards the end of our 14, 16, or 18 hours of fasting. And that ketone body is transported to our heart and brain for better function. So in that way, liver plays a huge role in fueling our brain and keeping us smart. Uh, It really matters so much. It seems like we're now using circadian biology to rediscover things that maybe we knew a thousand years ago. Do you agree with that? Well, the thing is, when it comes to health and wellness, anything that we can think of has already been tried in human history because you know humans have been trying uh, by trial and error and many other methods to figure out what is the best way to live a healthy long life. Um, so that's what we always so that's what we always hear that uh, yes, whatever you discovered, our grandmother used to say. <laughs> Talk to me about what you've seen either in the lab or in in other readings, other research. Uh, around proper wake-up time, and is it the same for everyone? Well, your day actually begins when you go to bed the previous night because that determines uh, how long you'll sleep, how long you'll reset your brain, and then how fresh you wake up in the morning. So um, if somebody is going to... So one rule of thumb is uh, most sleep researchers agree that an adult should be in bed for eight hours. I'm saying should be in bed for eight hours. So out of that, somebody may get six and a half to seven hours of sleep. So that means if someone wants to wake up at 6 a.m., then this person should aim to go to bed at 10 p.m. at night. And then the question is whether people who wake up at 6 a.m. versus 8 a.m., 9 a.m., or 10 a.m., are there any difference in performance? I think that's where the wake-up time is not as important as how many hours you slept. Um, The person may be going to bed at 3 a.m. and waking up at 6 and maybe getting three hours of sleep. We know that that's not going to board very well uh, for next day's performance. But when people wake up late, then the thing is they're more likely to have a better night's sleep. And uh, because what is happening is in modern days, we have to stay awake late into the night for many different reasons. We have to have our social life or sometimes the kids come back, the parents help them with homework or something else. So in that way, our sleep is getting delayed. And, and people who wake up later, maybe they are getting better sleep. One nice study on that, not on older adults, but on high school students, just came out. It's a nice collaboration between uh, Horacio D'Iglesia um, from Seattle and our lab, 
what happened was few years ago there was this hypothesis that teenagers are not getting enough sleep when they wake up in the morning and go to school yeah. very early uh, so maybe delaying their school start time will help them so seattle school district which is the largest school district in the us decided to delay the high school start time from 7:30 in the morning to 8:30 in the morning and uh, that was a big resistance from teachers because teachers and parents yeah. they are likely to wake up early and teenagers are likely likely to wake up late and uh, so that's why seattle school district was very eager to see whether the school delayed school start time has a better effect on students performance and uh, horacio and his team monitored 200 students from two different schools um when the school start time was 7:30 am and they monitored them with uh, very high grade this fda approved medical grades sleep trackers and activity trackers for 75 up to 75 days for up to almost 2 months um before the school start time changed and also tracked their grades and tracked their absenteeism or tardiness and then after the school start time changed to 8:30 uh, he again went back and collected the same set of data from 200 students and then the results are pretty clean um over the last 100 years us adults and teenagers have lost 1 hour of sleep so that means in every year we are losing around 0.6 minutes of sleep um and what he found is by delaying school start time by an hour these students got 34 minutes of sleep so that means we turned the clock back among seattle school students so that now in 2018 these students are sleeping as much as students in 1950 were getting that much sleep i i i just i'm so happy that you're talking about this i'm always talking about school start times on social media you don't want to have your kids getting up at you know 6:30 in the morning when they're 14 years old it's not natural yeah. it's mean and not only that we we also saw that when they slept more 34 minutes it's not that they did not do their homework <laughs> actually they improved their grade by nearly 5% just imagine if someone if your kid is getting 86 87 in all the subjects and is getting a b grade just that extra sleep will bring that grade to a because now he or she is going to get all a's the average score will be around 90 91 we also saw reduction in uh, tardiness so particularly kids uh, when they are getting up too early and then are sleepy and there is not enough time to reach school a lot of them end up uh, being late so this is an exciting study that clearly shows that in modern days it's not ideal to wake up so early and maybe for some people at least for high school students who are the foundations of our future we should let them sleep a little bit more and it's going to improve their overall health increase maybe longevity in long term improve productivity and their score well i am going to take the excerpt of this interview and i'm going to play it for the school board here and i would encourage you if you're listening to this to take this we've got Dr. Sachin Panda one of the world's preeminent experts from the Salk Institute on circadian biology telling you that sleep is a cognitive enhancing substance you can use for your kids to get better grades uh, get them to show up to school more 
So there's no excuse for starting school early. You'll hear these dumb excuses like, oh, it impacts traffic flow. It's like, hey, this is the next generation here. So go around the school zone or something. It, it doesn't matter. That This is simply not okay. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's one of those things that we're going to figure out multiple generations wise. Let's see what happens when you have five generations of people who are sleep deprived as kids, what it does to the IQ of a country. Probably not good things. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll get off my, my soapbox there. So you you yeah. you pointed out one thing, traffic flow. Actually, there are studies showing that when school start time is delayed, then the kids have less accidents. Of course, because they're not. <laughs> I, I remember driving like a zombie to school uh, uh, when I was when I what I can remember from high school because I was so darn tired because I mean wake up in the middle of the night. Yeah. But all right, uh, I have another question though. You mentioned most sleep experts agree on eight hours of sleep, but most. Exercise experts now will also tell you that they agree on 10,000 steps as the ultimate number of steps per day. When I looked at the data on sleep and found that the people who live the longest from a 1.2 million person study that went for three years, that they only sleep six and a half hours a night. Yeah. I'm like, I don't care if most sleep experts say that you should sleep eight hours a night because it, it's apparent that sleeping more than eight hours a night is actually dangerous compared to sleeping maybe seven and a half hours. So where does eight hours really come from? And do you believe that having seen rat melanopsin sensors in labs and Petri dishes and all that? Like how much BS are we dealing with? Well, the epidemiology is right. Uh, the self-reported six and a half hour of sleep correlates very well with longevity or disease-free life. Uh, when it comes to eight hours, it's not eight hours of sleep. It's eight hours in bed. That's what I I always tell oh, people so that, it's what else you're doing in bed that makes you live longer. Okay, that changed the whole <laughs> equation. Yeah, so when I say, I always tell people, aim for eight hours in bed. And we know these days when people go to bed, they're checking emails and doing other things. And then when they wake up, sometimes they wake up and then they're still tired. They check their email and other stuff before they get out of the bed. So that's that's what we say, that target eight hours in bed. Okay. <laughs> Eight hours in bed, no matter what you're doing. That that I, I might be able to get away with that. Do you have anything you've learned from all the work you've done, specifically with lighting or or food or anything else about reducing sleep latency, so people go to sleep faster when they want to in bed? Well, uh, there are a few things. I Means you have already hacked how to <laughs> do your neurofeedback. Um, one thing is what we are finding: people who do time restricted eating, and particularly if they stop eating two to three hours before bedtime. Uh, that helps. Second, yep. uh, reducing exposure to blue light for two to three hours before going to bed. Yeah, that also helps. And this is much more important because now, uh, actually, I have a app that we just built up from the lab called My Lux Recorder, one single word, <clears throat> and wherever I go. Oh, <laughs> can I get it now? Is, is it? Yeah, is it's it on, it's on, on the iOS. Uh, and it tracks your light exposure all day. I've been wanting this for no, years. No, no, no. It's, it's oh. not, uh, it, you have to open the app and then record it. But then the point is, wherever I go, I just record it. What is interesting, two to three years ago, when LED lights were not that popular, um, many stores, department stores, uh, grocery stores, uh, drug stores, et cetera, they used to have 300 to 500 lux of light. And now after the switch to bright blue LEDs, uh, these stores have easily 1,000 lux or more light. And that is very worrisome because most people go to do their grocery shop, uh, shopping or go to get a drug um, from the drugstore at night. 
And when they go, they spend at least half an hour in this bright blue light. Yes. So one more thing I got to add is <laughs> if you're going to if you're going out of your home and going to a drugstore or a grocery store or any store these days, then make sure that you are less exposed to blue light. Maybe this is where blue filtering glasses will come handy because in many cases, we cannot just stop up going to these stores at night. That's the only time we may have to go shopping. Okay. Uh, so what, so no food for two to three food. hours, no bright light for two to three hours. And then um, some people, uh, their core body temperature or body temperature doesn't fall well at nighttime. And to have a good night's sleep, we need to have a good drop in core body temperature. So people can take a shower and that actually helps to drop the body temperature. They can go to sleep. A, a cool shower. Yeah. Uh, some people like a warm shower. Some like a cold shower. But the bottom line is whatever shower you take, your blood circulation will draw towards your skin away from the core. And that helps to cool down your body. Would, uh, would drinking a glass of ice water be a good idea before bed? Yeah, if you're not uh, likely to get up and pee, then it's a good idea. Okay, F fair point. That's that's bad for sleep. <laughs> Peeing is bad for sleep. Got, got that one. And then the last one is uh, your right to darkness, because we have lost our right to darkness. There is so much yes. light everywhere. It's really sometimes, it's mind-boggling how we have lost our right to darkness. Even in a modern house uh, with the best architecture, without a good um um i mean blackout shades yeah good um insulation and good uh, dark out curtains uh it's almost impossible to get darkness plus there are all these indicators and all these lights on your phones on your uh, appliances tv etc so that keeps us very jazzed up and in fact there is a study that just came out showing that even one lux of light which is equivalent to even uh, bright moonlight <laughs> on full moon day, full moon night. Uh, having that one lux of light in some bedroom for some people can disrupt their sleep. And so that's why it's very important to have right to darkness. If you cannot have darkness, then maybe um, a pair of um, eye sets or a sleeping mask will help. Now, this is a very important issue because right now in many countries, um, the only bulb people can purchase is LED light. And if they're not aware about how much uh, light they need or how dim they need, it's going to make this sleep deprivation more profound and widespread. So it'll be an epidemic of less sleep because of the LED lights. What do you do at home for, for sleep with your lighting? Well, we don't have any light that's more than that produces more than 40 watt of light. Okay. Uh, so these are all dim. And if we need lighting, then we, we have spot lighting or work lighting, for example, table lamps that illuminates the work area, but not your eyes, not your face. <laughs> um, and then all of my computers and uh, our smartphones, they already have night shift or night light feature. So they switch to orange color or dim down around 8.30 or 9 o'clock. Uh, so that's uh, one has to be very knowledgeable and has to make that extra effort but it just takes 10 to 15 minutes to change all your night shift and night light feature at least yeah. on your computer and it may not affect your sleep but at, at least it nudges you because if you are staring at the computer and your computer screen changes then you know 
that it's time to go to bed. So it acts as a going to sleep alarm clock. We have waking up alarm clock, but these light changes actually prepares your body and then slowly you'll fall asleep. Uh, that is uh, that is fantastic. And yeah, having a go to sleep alarm clock is uh, is profound and using light as a way to, to do that is really cool because most people listening have probably on some internet ad or something, you've seen the the alarm clocks that wake you up with light. They, uh, they, they slowly turn on and the light t- comes up and up and up before there's a sound alarm so that when the sound happens, you're already kind of mostly awake because the light signaled to your body, hey, it's about time to wake up. Why not do the reverse when you go to sleep? I, I really like that idea. Yeah, I think uh, slowly... Many of the building control systems will incorporate this idea. And just like your Nest thermostat cools down your home or warms it up before you get home. So similarly, uh, maybe all the lightings in the house will slowly dim down, starting from the kitchen. (laughs) Kitchen should close around 6.30 or 7, so kitchen should become dark. And then slowly the living room, and then you'll be nuts to go towards your bedroom. (laughs) <laughs> I, I love it. And junk lights is as bad as junk food. You know, would you eat a big bowl of French fries? I would hope not. And would you stare at you know, bright white LEDs right before bed? I'd hope not because they're kind of equivalent in terms of doing bad things for you. Yeah, it's almost like uh, you know, timing makes a healthy food junk. Similarly, timing can make healthy light junk. Yeah. During daytime, we need that blue light, uh, bright light. But at nighttime, that's just junk light. Yeah. When women are pregnant, they're much more likely to wake up between three and five in the morning. And a lot of people who aren't pregnant, uh, men and women, uh, have this problem. They wake up and they can't go back to sleep. And their their mind is racing and things like that. And what is happening in many of these cases is their blood sugar crash. They didn't have enough blood sugar to basically run the glymphatic system and to sleep. So the body said, oh, I know how to make sugar. Let's secrete some cortisol, maybe a little adrenaline because those raise blood sugar. Therefore, now I have enough fuel for the brain. Unfortunately, cortisol and adrenaline wake you up at three to five and you can't go back to sleep. So the the hack for that was, I found kind of two different groups. Maybe it's a gene. I don't have the genetic testing to tell you what it is, but one group of people, they do some collagen protein, high in glycine uh, and low in the stimulating amino acids that raise orexin the same way modafinil does. Uh, some of that uh, with some ketogenic things, dare I say brain octane, uh, which raises ketones, they have enough energy that they sleep through the night. And then the other half of people, they take a teaspoon or two of raw honey, and I found a study that showed it raised liver glycogen 22% more than cooked honey or other forms of sugar, and liver glycogen uh, can fuel the brain effectively versus muscle glycogen. So I'm like, try it out. If you're having this problem, a little bit of this before sleep, can stop you from waking up because of the blood sugar stabilizing effect of, of honey, not in hot tea, because then it's cooked honey, but raw honey. Um, any, because those are both eating before bed. They're small <laughs> amounts. We're, we're talking, you know, five, 10 grams. Uh, is there some lower limit of food like that that's not going to break my circadian rhythm? Because I, I don't want to break my circadian <laughs> rhythm, but I want to sleep all night. Like, what do you, what do, you do for that case? Well, we haven't uh, done anything like that because it's a, it's a moving target. It's, uh, people will say, how much is small enough? Um, the reason why that raw honey or whatever you're eating is going to your liver and is getting stored is because the whole system wakes up. Yeah. Uh, so we haven't done any research in that area, but what we have seen is people who do time restricted eating, they do sleep very well. Maybe they normalize 
the way their body learns how much glycogen to store. And this this relates to a very interesting um, circadian rhythm study done in plants. <laughs> and mm-hmm. You may laugh at it, but we learned a lot of uh, insights into circadian rhythm from plants. Uh, if you think about plants, plants have to make food only during daytime when there is sunlight. Mm-hmm. And at night, they don't have access to anything else. The only food source is their stored starch. And they have to break down that starch to go through the night. And they cannot have this exogenous um, food. They cannot just absorb glucose from the soil or anything else. So what happens is the circadian clock in plants, if you're growing plants, say, in 10 hours light, 14 hours darkness, then the plants will learn that they have to go through 14 hours of darkness. So they will store just enough starch that will last exactly 14 Mm. hours when they wake up. Wow. So now you take the same plant and make the night 10 hours night and 14 hours of light. Even though they're getting more light, they're not going to store too much starch. Again, they will dial down and they'll store exactly the same amount of starch they need to go over the 10 hours night. In fact, when this paper came out, it was from UK, and it was a few years ago when UK was having some problem with their budget. Mm -hmm. So the headline was, a tiny plant knows how to manage its economy, but Mm -hmm. a British (laughs) finance minister doesn't know it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That sounds uniquely British, uh, like their press. (laughs) So similarly, when one has a very strong circadian rhythm where we we go through a very um, regular habit of when we stop eating, then our body will learn how much stored glycogen the body needs. Maybe that's what is happening because we see that people who do time restricted eating, uh, they always report that they sleep better, particularly this waking up at three, three o'clock. I used to wake up at three o'clock for an hour or two. And then I thought that that was normal because that was so common. But then quickly I realized that what is common is not normal because you need that continuous restorative sleep. Now it feels much better waking up after continuous sleep than waking up in the middle of the night and staying awake for one or two hours. Uh, What is your take on longer fasts, maybe even going to up to three or four days where you're just having water? I'll do water and black coffee because, I mean, come on. Um, but, uh, uh, during that, uh, during that time, what does that can do to my circadian rhythm? Is it advisable? How does that line up with the circadian code? Well, the circadian rhythm still continues with a longer fast. Um, okay. and, um, it actually goes through a longer rejuvenation. Maybe, okay. um, we haven't looked at longer fast in animals because animals don't like this very long fast, uh, water only fast for two to three days. And in humans, we know there are a lot of studies from other groups showing that longer fast are very good in reversing or managing many chronic disease. And um, we know that longer fast will activate autophagy pathway to much higher levels, so that will help. Longer fast might also increase your ketone body production, and that also helps. So all the indications are Yes, longer fast, if you can do, are beneficial for the body. And it's not going to disturb the circadian clock because the circadian clock is an internal timekeeping mechanism that continues even without calorie. 
and that's how it will anticipate when you should go to bed, when you should wake up. And in fact, people who do longer fast, they always report that um, it's not that they cannot go to bed because they're hungry. They actually go to bed much better and they stay, they have their good night's sleep even during longer fast. Yeah, I sleep well during longer fasts. Yeah. Well, when you finish a 48 or 72 or multi-day fast, um, breaking the fast is not easy because your body has forgotten food. You don't have that appetite for a big meal. Um, so usually you break it with a small meal. So like, in that like, way, like a one pound ribeye steak, the way I do it? Or <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> So small I don't know meal. how you break it, but for me, uh, <laughs> the first time I break, it's a, usually a small salad okay. or a fruit, something like that. Uh, so I'm not actually, I'm not hungry. Uh, and yeah, yeah when it's, I do, it's surprising. Yeah, you're not yeah, hungry at all. When I do long fast, it's usually four or five days minimum. So by the end of four or five days, you have to force yourself to eat. Mm-hmm. And um, so I usually break the fast in the afternoon because that's, that's when I have time to break the fast because, as okay. you know, it, it takes, <laughs> even for that small salad, uh, I take a relatively long time to even force that. Um, so I think it will be very personal what time they they are planning to break the fast and whether they are planning to break the fast alone or with uh, somebody else. And Yeah, but then the idea is don't break the fast with a big meal. I, I agree with that, by the way. I was joking about the ribeye. <laughs> <laughs> I figured out. <laughs> right, cool. Well, is there anything else that you would like hundreds of thousands of listeners to know about their circadian biology, about your work? I mean, you, you've you've done so much, but you know, you've got a big microphone right now. Like, help people with some some stuff you know. Well, the thing is, last uh, couple of years, um, few things that have come out that are very reassuring and essentially telling that uh, timing makes healthy food junk. And the bottom line is this. Uh, last year, there was a study that came out from Joe Takahashi's lab, who is considered a really a leader in the circadian rhythm field because he discovered the gene clock. What he found was we know that caloric restriction is beneficial, but most caloric restriction studies in mice and larger animals are done in a way that the mice are given a chunk of food which is less than what they should be eating. And this chunk of food is given usually in the afternoon or evening. (laughs) And mice eat that food within three to four hours every single day. So essentially all caloric restriction studies done in rodents are mixture of caloric restriction and time restriction because they're going through almost 20 hours of fast. Well, and also, aren't those nocturnal animals who should be eating at night and yet have weird indoor lighting disturbing things as well? (laughs) Well, so that's why the second part of uh, Joe's uh, experiment is exciting. Oh, okay. He took two groups of mice and did caloric restriction of both of them. One group got food in the evening when they're supposed to get, and then the other group got food in the morning. Oh, wow. And both groups got the exact same number of calories from caloric restriction. And if we go by CR, caloric restriction literature, both groups should see the same benefit irrespective of timing. (laughs) But what was exciting was the morning-fed mice did not lose weight, although they were eating less food. 
And that was really interesting that even if you are doing caloric restriction, if you eat at the wrong time, then you may not see sufficient benefit of caloric restriction. Uh, all right, here, here's the deal. If some <laughs> joker tells you that calories in, calories out, losing weight is just a matter of counting calories, you can just quote that. You can cut out this snippet. You can send it to them. Here's the deal. That, that science is dead. There's a nail in it. And, yep. and if, if that's not enough, let's just give a little bit of xenoestrogen to some of the mice and caloric <laughs> restriction and see whether they lose weight. They won't. So yeah. screw calories. Yes, calories matter. You do not lose weight by cutting calories. You have to cut the right calories at the right time and do the other stuff. All right, sorry. Yeah. Th- th- thank you for, for bringing that one up. <laughs> then you might ask, why do we have circadian rhythms? Uh, well, one thing is... Uh, have you ever tried like doing two different tasks at the same time? For example, texting and driving or kind of uh, those kind of stuff where two things actually don't match. You may be able to do for a while, but uh, that's not the best way to do. But at the same time, there are different tasks that go together. For example, um, listening to Bulletproof Radio and sipping some Bulletproof coffee, <laughs> they go together. <laughs> right. Okay, I'm not going to argue with that one. <laughs> So, um, or similarly, like uh, eating dinner and talking to your friends and family. So those things go together, whereas many things that don't go together. Just like that, in our body, when we go to sleep or when we wake up or when we go play sports, there are many things, many genes, many hormones, many brain chemicals that have to work together. So, for example, when you go to sleep at night, a sleep hormone melatonin should go up a muscle tone should go down so that we can sleep nicely, we should not act our act out our dreams. Conversely, during daytime, we need less melatonin so that we feel less sleepy, more cortisol, and then our muscle tone should go, go up, our heart rate should go up. So these things go together. And circadian rhythms essentially make sure that compatible things go together and are time to the right time and incompatible processes are separated between day and night. And that's kind of the basic um, principle or basic reason why we have circadian rhythms. There are so many things that your work and, and that of others have teased out, like different environmental variables that affect our circadian rhythm, that part of my craft of biohacking is to recognize, I know I, I I am going to fly. You know, I, I'm not going to live a perfect circadian life, but if I can yeah. avoid harming my circadian rhythm more than necessary, I, I'll do that. So, like my my house at home, all of the exterior lighting is is a sea turtle friendly red lighting. So my friends uh, think I live in a submarine or some sort of house of <laughs> ill repute, but I can go outside and red light doesn't affect circadian rhythm, so I can still see the stars. And the side yeah. effect is that I don't attract bugs with those, but I have three species of owl that nest within a hundred yards of the house because I'm not wow. disrupting their circadian rhythm. So like it's, yeah. it's like this external light pollution affects not just us, but every living thing on the planet, right? Yeah, so exactly. So th- this is what we discovered almost 15, 16 years ago. Um, we know that uh, there is a small, very small number of nerve cells in the base of our brain. They act as master clock in our brain. And these 20,000 neurons are literally hardwired to our retina or to our eye. And uh, they're only a very small subset, maybe 5,000 to 10,000 special cells in our retina that sense only blue light, mostly blue light, 
and they send that information back into the master clock neurons. So that's how um, we are designed, not only us, as you pointed out, um, almost every animal is designed to synchronize their internal circadian clock with the sunlight or day-night cycle because sunlight or daylight is the richest source of blue light out there. So that's why we are designed to synchronize our clock with blue light. So, if, so that very simple understanding that blue light uh, synchronizes our clock has a huge impact because, as you pointed out, in modern living condition, we spend a lot of time in the evening in front of bright screen or bright light, and most of those lights also have a significant amount of blue light. So that blue light suppresses melatonin. It confuses our circadian clock. Our clock doesn't know whether evening has already started or it's just twilight zone. So I, I think of like our body is in constant twilight zone. Uh, so we get sleep disturbances. And similarly, outside light pollution can disrupt rhythms in many birds, in many migratory species. They cannot migrate at the right time. They can be predated. They can completely be wiped out because they get confused which season it is. Um, so that simple idea, it's kind of interesting that in 15 to 16 years, that simple discovery that we made in mouse and then later on other people verified it happens in humans has led to your cell phones now tuning to orange color around 10 o'clock at night. And uh, this also has a huge impact because we know that the amount of light that comes out of an iPad, iPhone, or any kind of smart screen is enough to disrupt our circadian rhythm. But if we change that light color, that will have huge impact. So it's gratifying to see a basic science discovery has made it to a billion or more smartphones and people are actually starting to use that knowledge. And second, as you pointed out, the next revolution will be this lighting revolution where we can have tunable lighting so that we can change the color of the light uh, depending on the time of the day. Have you looked at LED, uh, like white LED versus fluorescent versus halogen versus incandescent and what they do to circadian rhythm? Well, so there are a lot of studies going on on uh, those kind of light sources. And in fact, uh, three, four years ago, a bunch of us, including lighting engineers, architects, um, ophthalmologists, and uh, physician, primary care physicians and scientists, uh, lighting manufacturers, we all got together in Tokyo and came up with a statement, position statement on LED lighting, and that was published last year. And it's very true that light has a huge impact, and people can do very simple things, just like you, you had a lot of sound bites there. <laughs> One is dimmable switch. Um, well, you might have a lighting fixture that you don't want to get rid of, but at the same time, you can just switch, you can just change the switch, put a dimmer. Uh, I think everybody should uh, remove their light on/off switch. That is so last millennium, and then put <laughs> dimmers. <laughs> you are every every switch in my house has them. That's exactly right. Well, my house has very old uh, lighting, so I so most of our rooms have um, very dim lights to begin with, so we don't even go there. Dimmers, okay. And then the few uh, lights where they came they came in built with dimmers. <laughs> we are so dim light, so people who come to the house they think that we are in prehistoric age or something. <laughs> but it's great because I feel uh, sleepy. Our house is the same. Yeah, between nine and ten, and I have a 
15 year old daughter and she has perfect circadian rhythm she goes to sleep early gets up early and then goes to high school um so everything is fine just by changing one simple thing so people should start thinking about buying those dimmers <laughs> do you think that there is any any validity to that that idea that some people have a a, a later shifted circadian rhythm some have an earlier shifted circadian rhythm like could that be biologically based or do we just oh, not yeah. know enough Okay. No, actually, that's a, that's a very interesting topic that you brought up. Uh, just like you said, you are naturally designed to uh, wired to go late. There are many people who are naturally wired to go late, and in fact, we call these the good at, people, right? The, the, yeah, the very best people. Normal, are there? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, <I'm just> kidding. <laughs> no, almost twenty years ago, this this was not a uh, this was not even considered that uh, we are designed to go early or late. So in fact, there was this woman, um, I'm forgetting her real name. Um, so she went to many sleep doctors and said, uh, well, I have this problem that I cannot resist. I just go to bed very early. So she used to go to bed around 7.30 or 8. And she would wake up around 3 o'clock uh, or 2 o'clock. So she was a really early riser. And then the sleep doctors would say, well, you are already getting seven hours of sleep, so you are perfectly fine. There is nothing wrong with you. This is all in your head. And this is some cuckoo thought. Uh, don't worry about it. There is no cure. This is not a disease. And she went around many sleep doctors. And finally, she came to a sleep doctor in Utah, University of Utah Medical Center. And this sleep doctor had a good friend who is a human geneticist. And he thought that maybe there is some truth to it. Maybe there is a genetic mutation in this person. So he talked to uh, a good friend of mine, Louis Pitasek, and uh, Louis used to do, um, still does, very good uh, human genetic research. And his, and um, this guy, Chris and Louis, they were biking and they talked about this story and Louis got super excited. He went and talked to his wife, Ying Hui Fu, who is also a human geneticist, was working on neuro disease. And they both got excited because they thought, well, this is something really cool because if there is a sleep gene that times your sleep to different times, then it will be cool to discover. So for the next three to four years, they put all their time, resource, and effort on figuring out what is wrong with this woman. And finally, they found a mutation in a circadian clock gene called period two. Uh, the bottom line is when this gene is mutated, then these people who have that, that mutation, they go to bed very early. And as the as they published this very groundbreaking paper on, uh, almost 17, 18 years ago in 2000, a lot of people started calling them and saying, well, I have a natural tendency to go to bed super late or I can sleep with only four hours or five hours. I'm fully functional. So they got a lot of human mutants <laughs> and they have been... <laughs> <laughs> they have been publishing a lot of papers identifying new genes. So there is another gene. If it is mutated, then those people can sleep only for four to five hours, and they can they are completely perfectly functional. Uh, so that's a gene that makes you need less sleep. So similarly, now there are new mutations uh, people are finding that will keep you awake. Uh, so it's possible, Dave, that you are a mutant. It, it's entirely likely, uh, given yeah. that uh, <laughs> half of my family comes from Roswell, New Mexico. The other half uh, worked in the nuclear power industry yeah. for their entire life. So <laughs> it, it has to be that. Given that so many people are now doing things like 
bulletproof coffee or keto diets and things like that. Do you think that there's a role in setting circadian rhythm by manipulating fat versus sugar versus protein? Well, uh, what we have done is in, in it started with mice. Uh, so as I told you, in mice, when we put these mice on eight hours or 10 hours eating window, and they go through somewhere between 14 to 16 hours of fasting, then those mice run on treadmill twice longer than mice that have a levitum access to even healthy diet. So that triggered us to think what is going on here. And that advantage goes away if the mice eat for 12 hours. Everything else remains the same. They have the same body weight. They have the same blood sugar and everything same. Only when they go to 8 hours or 10 hours, then we see this advantage in endurance. And what we find is when mice eat for 8 to 10 hours, then they towards the end of the fasting period, they naturally build up their ketone bodies. So that means the ketone-making enzymes, uh, the pathway that breaks down fat into ketone, those are activated by circadian rhythm, but it also requires the combination of having a good rhythm and that long fasting of more than 12 hours. And what is interesting is through our circadian, my circadian clock app, a lot of athletes and a lot of um, health enthusiasts have been following time-restricted eating and they experiment oh, yeah. themselves between 12 hours, 10 hours, and 8 hours. And a lot of them, they report us back that when they do 8 hours eating or 10 hours eating, then they can do that marathon uh, less tired. Or some people who are just going for spinning classes, uh, after an hour, they're less tired. So that is uh, kind of telling us that the circadian, there is a circadian program to make ketone bodies towards the end of our fasting cycle. And that ketone body has a huge impact, not only on cardiovascular health, but also on brain health. And in fact, in follow-up to that basic science research that we did in mice, there was another study that came out from Europe that showed that, yes, when rats or mice are given access to food only for six hours, then they make ketone bodies, and that ketone body goes to the brain and acts on certain part, only on certain part of the brain, clock neurons, to start what is called exploratory activity. So that means when we are hungry, actually, if you think about it, if you dial back, say, 100 years or 200 years back, if it was a winter night or even a long night, uh, the person, the our ancestors, they had their meal maybe around just before evening, and then they fasted for the entire night, 12 hours. And then after twilight zone, maybe at 10 o'clock in the morning, they would go hunt. And they have gone through almost 14 to 16 hours of fasting. But what is interesting is they have to, their brain has to act much better in that hungry state. And the muscles have to act much quicker in that hungry state to go and catch that um, deer or some other animals. So that's why we are programmed to go through this daily cycle of ketosis so that in the last two to four hours of our fasting period, we build up the ketone body to make our brain more active, our muscles more active, our heart more active so that we can go and hunt. And that exactly we see even in these mice and rats so they become more active towards the end of the fasting cycle and they go look for food. Even an hour or two before they're supposed to get food, they will get up and then start looking around. 
So I think this is a very primordial signature, primordial program in our circadian system that we naturally make. Yeah. Uh, Beautiful. Is there anywhere else people can go to find out more about your research? Do you have a a website or any page that they could go to if they want to read more about circadian geekiness? Yeah. So actually, the same website, mycircadianclock.org, has a blog post. We try to put uh, blogs. Then I have my own Twitter handle, Sachin Panda, and I try to put everything new about circadian rhythm. And also once in a while, I kind of post something what I say, milestones in circadian rhythm research or health research. Uh, It's not restricted to circadian rhythm because, as I said, I truly believe lifestyle is what, when, and how much we eat, sleep, and move. So that will be about physical fitness, sleep, nutrition quality, quantity, etc. So I have a few thousand followers, so (laughs) I also take questions once in a while. All right. Well, you'll probably get a few... You get a few thousand more here. There's a there's a surprising number of researchers, uh, medical professionals, and you know, pro athletes and people like that who listen to the show. So I I hope that everyone listening to this, whether you're in one of those fields or not, this is really important stuff that's been missing from the world of you know chronic cardio and you know low fat diets for long periods of time. All the stuff that made me weigh 300 pounds. So I I am a huge fan of, of your research and and just my personal thanks for for both doing the research, but then being willing to talk about it and say, well, what if you tried it? Because we think it might work. And I, that that just takes academic balls. So you've got those, Sachin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio. Totally appreciate your work. Thank you, Dave. I'm glad to be here. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.